Hello and welcome to Spotlight On, a production of 23 Media Ventures. I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier. Today, the spotlight shines on Kat Henry, the Brooklyn, New York-based Executive Director for Live Music Society, a philanthropic foundation whose mission is to recognize and protect small music venues and listening rooms across the United States so that live music remains accessible to all. Before LMS, Kat served as Vice President of Concerts and Touring for Jazz at Lincoln Center and is currently Curator of Jazz Programs for Hudson Hall in Hudson, New York. She's also talent buyer for Bethel Woods Center for the Arts. Kat has programmed, produced, and appeared at countless music and arts events, and her combined experience gives her a unique perspective on the needs and concerns of artists, venues, and other stakeholders in the live events ecosystem. In addition to the issues of the day, Kat spoke with us about Live Music Society's grant programs, including the current application period they're in. Live music patron or professional, this conversation will definitely have something for you. Enjoy. So I'm very intrigued by what you do over at Live Music Society for several reasons. One, as a lifelong music fan, it would be hard not to appreciate the work you do, but also as someone who's been a live music professional in one way or another for sadly most of my adult life. (laughs) (laughs) That makes two of us. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. We, We can talk about that too. It's something that I appreciate as a professional, but I'm also super intrigued by as just sort of an industry observer. And so I'm I'm very excited to unpack some of this with you. I wonder if, as a service to me and to our listeners, if we could start broadly and if you could talk a little bit about the mission and motivation of the Live Music Society. Yeah, Live Music Society is a nonprofit foundation, a philanthropic foundation. It was basically started by a group of music industry professionals and um, artists who really care about the smaller music spaces, the listening rooms across the United States, the places where artists get their start, hone their craft, and find their audiences where they learn whether they've got what it takes. And there's a lot of economic and other pressures on these spaces that are so essential to American culture. So the foundation began as a way to recognize that place, protect them, and to bring them together as a network to share best practices and learn from each other. And that's where we've begun and and how we're growing. Am I correct in understanding that the idea and the founding predated COVID? This was not driven necessarily (laughs) by COVID? No, it wasn't driven by COVID. It was a seed of an idea in 2019 think that the board had applied for nonprofit status in something like January of 2020. <laughs> so, you know, it was just at the cusp of coming into being right before lockdown. And of course, that changed everything. It was born out of the founder, Pete Muller's first touring experience. 
He's a finance professional in his career, but also a singer-songwriter and toured with Stephen Kellogg in 2019, toured uh, almost 50 small venues and spoke to the venue owners and, and learned about the struggles they face and the joy and the pain of being a small venue owner and decided that he could club together and bring some people together to try and bring awareness to that and, and to help in some way. So they were just getting started when COVID hit and, of course, immediately turned towards emergency funding with a goal to distribute $2 million in the first two years of operation, which we did. And now we've just reached the $3 million mark with our fifth round of grants, which we can talk a little bit about. We now have two signature grant programs coming beyond emergency funding. Thankfully, we're beyond emergency funding and into the original idea for the foundation. Yeah. Let me loop back to that in a moment. There's one other question I wanted to ask you as sort of a uh, prelude to some of the deeper dive. There's a term that you just used and that I see a lot in your literature, which is listening rooms. How, if at all, would you define the difference between a venue and a listening room? Because it's very specific the way the organization uses that term. Well, there's a difference and both are valuable. There's a difference between a small group of people in front of maybe a solo guitarist hanging on every note, every sound, every lyric versus 200 people and a mosh pit <laughs> wildly dancing to an, it, their favorite indie band and a cacophony and a, and a different kind of social experience. Both are valid. Both occur in our network of venues. And by small venues, we're referencing venues that are under 300 capacity, but generally more than 50, more than a cafe. And so it's a, two different types of experiences. Listening rooms are places where generally people are sitting down, they're quiet spaces, and it doesn't matter the genre of music. It could be a jazz club, Americana, folk. It's just a, a slightly different experience to a, a music club, uh, a dance club where indie bands and rock bands play. That, that's really the only difference. Talk to me a little bit about the grant programs. You mentioned that there's several now, and it's not solely about emergency funding. And there are other areas. I know Neva has the foundation, which is in many regards has a fund that is specifically for things like fires, earthquakes, flooding. Unfortunately, things we're going to probably be encountering more and more of as a, as a live music community. What's the niche, if you will, that you're filling or the needs you're addressing? And how do the different programs do that? Yeah, we took a, a minute after the summer of 2022 to look at what we were hoping was a post-COVID environment, despite Omicron, despite the ongoing, very slow recovery that small venues are facing with no shows and lower attendance and last minute ticket sales. We wanted to come out of this period as an organization with something a little bit more forward thinking and optimistic a glimmer of hope on the horizon. Our board, we discussed the way that we could best serve our community. And in fact, we hosted a bunch of focus groups. We did a survey. 
We looked at our prior grantees after doing three rounds of emergency funding, and we came up with the idea, and we heard from our community that it was a struggle to get re-engaged with their audience, re-engaged with having people be aware that they're around, that they're reopened, bringing people back into their space in a way that everybody felt safe, understanding that there were lingering hesitation about being in crowds, which I think in some ways is still for various populations, still an aspect of the sector. So we, we decided to launch what is now going to be our annual signature program called Music in Action. And it is a broad audience development, community engagement focused grant. We didn't box it. We didn't put a a bow around it. We asked venue owners and applicants, come to us with your creative ideas. We believe that you know what you need to recover and to look ahead to what long-term growth and health means to you and your community, whether it's city or rural. We'll accept your creative ideas and you can apply for up to $50,000. And that was the program that we ran in the spring of 2023. And we announced 17 grantees from that program in the, in the summertime. And we had a chance to celebrate them at the NEBA conference. And from that group of applications, we decided to launch a second grant program called Toolbox, which is geared towards one-time, more practical purposes. We had asked, if you don't have a big creative audience development idea, come to us with what you do need and we'll see what happens because this is a learning experience for us too. And so there were a lot of applications that said, oh, I don't want to do a music festival or I don't want to do an open house, but I, I do need to build a bathroom because I built an outdoor stage during the pandemic. There's nowhere for people to go to the toilet. (laughs) <laughs> so, so things like that, very not unglamorous, practical things became our new toolbox grant. So let me say it back to you just so that I fully understand. Toolbox is more about the sort of one time or out of the ordinary or more operationally focused needs that a, an operator might have. And where if they had to go for traditional sources of funding, even if they existed, they'd be talking about having to go to a bank or get a loan or do things that really put their business operation even further behind the ball. Whereas this is a way to get some sort of unencumbered one-off money that helps them either take their business to the next level or at least keep it going. Is that fair? Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. There are SBA loans, there's small business loans, that there are sources of funding. And I hope some of our work is educating the philanthropic sector that small venues do need to be funded, even when they're not nonprofit organizations. A venue owner was making the joke the other day that there are nonprofits, there are for profits, and then there are for profits that make no profit. And that so it kind of uh, encapsulates some of the small venue operational challenges that the margins are so very slim. They don't have a spare dollar to do things that they know will improve and enhance the experience for artists who are visiting and performing, for their staff, for anybody who walks into their space. So yes, the toolbox grant 
which we're now accepting applications for, is geared towards those kind of one-time practical things. And I can give you a few examples of the things that we've already funded. We have 13 toolbox grantees currently and hope to have at least that many more by the time we get to the end of this year. Incredible. Tell me a little bit about Toolbox or maybe both programs in terms of what happens after the check's written. What's your involvement? What's your compliance or monitoring or oversight or even just in so much as the world of philanthropy or business in general is about storytelling? What are you doing with the grantees to stay in their lives and to understand how the money's being spent and to turn that into the next round? Community is everything. The music community of which you and I are a huge part, the way that artists and audiences connect and feel like they belong, that is now extended to the larger venue community through the work of organizations like Neva. I think venue owners are much more collaborative than they were. They used to see each other as as real competitors. And so there's an opportunity here to build a network. And I personally have made it my mission to reach out and say hello and connect and see the venue owners that, that we've given money to and to listen to them, not only in how they use the funds, but what else is going on, what they're excited about, how it's been to reopen. We've had so many stories about faltering opens and really exciting openings. So it's about creating a network and that will be our next phase looking at a convening for that group you know in some ways it's kind of a support group (laughs) a lot of venue owners are former musicians touring musicians I I think to a person they are music lifers music lovers and it's good to be around people who understand what they're going through and so that's one of the things that we want to develop We tell the stories through our social media. We want to bring visibility and awareness to these venues too. So telling their stories and what they're doing with the money is a part of us highlighting their great work, both in their local community through local newspaper articles and nationally. So yeah, we we stay in touch and we learn about what they've done and the music in action programs, the 17 programs, have only just started. The grant period is August 1 to the end of June. And so there's a flow of different projects. I was just at Drome, the great global music venue in the Lower East Side of New York, last week for the very first project that is funded by our grant. It's a collaboration that Drome has with a nonprofit called Moment, the, the Museum of Our Music and Entertainment, NYC and presenting a series of workshops and multimedia events and performances centered around New York City's music history. The first one was called Everybody L.E.S., Lower East Side, and it involved an improvisation from the Groove Collective honoring musician Butch Morris, led by Peter Applebaum. But it also had this fascinating 24-minute history of music on the Lower East Side in sound and vision from the days of vaudeville and all the way up through sonic youth and the punk and hip-hop it was fascinating yeah the 25 minutes presentation went so quickly 
And there were gasps from the audience of things that you didn't even realize that had happened in the East Village. So mm, I'd love to see that. Yeah, I, I was thinking it should be on all arts. I, was, I wanted to make that connection. It's something that every New Yorker should see. The history of the Lower East Side and music is really, really fascinating. And so that was the first program that they presented. And then DROM also has another partnership funded by the grant that is with Kids Rock for Kids. I don't know whether you've heard about that nonprofit. It's teenage rock musicians raising money to help their peers in underserved communities. And they needed rehearsal space. DROM is making rehearsal space and performance space available, funded by the grant, so that they can continue their operations. So these kinds of stories bring visibility to the connection between the venues and their community, that they're not just commercial entities interested in selling booze and making money, that they really care about the musicians and they really care about the communities that they're embedded in, whether city or rural. It's interesting because as someone who, you know, who's, who spends and has spent a lot of time with small and mid-sized venue operators, the realities of their day-to-day really do present them with, I think, challenges more so than the typical business person in terms of aligning their beliefs with their with the realities of the things they're up against. And you mentioned some, the need to sell alcohol or in other contexts, the need to have service fees on tickets. There's things, or even the prices of certain things that have to happen within the venue. There was a big controversy around venues and artists around the percentage of venue keeps for merchandising sales. Right. And there's all these things that when you talk to a venue operator, you're exactly right. They're former musicians. They're lifelong music lovers. They're not predators by and large. This isn't where you'd go if you were seeking yeah. to, to make as much money as humanly possible exploiting artists, you know? Um, yeah. Yet they're forced to have to make those sort of compromised decisions around things that they might not, if they put themselves in the patron or the artist's perspective, they don't, they don't want to charge surcharges. They don't want to have $7 beers. They don't want all these things, but you have to pay rent in New York City. You have to have yeah. insurance, you, you know, all these things that we don't always think about when we're the other stakeholders in the ecosystem. It's really where the business meets the reality of the marketplace in a very acute way. And I, I wanted to just talk to you a little bit before I ask you some more about the grants. I wanted to, you mentioned some of the challenges that are especially sharp for smaller venues and listening rooms coming out of COVID. And, you know, you articulated ongoing problems with no-shows and either decline in ticket sales or the changing patterns. This last-minute ticket buyer who, it's great that they ultimately walk through the door, but it's a different mindset for a venue operator. You know, it's nice to know six weeks out who's going to be coming in six weeks later as opposed to all the walk-up traffic and the different challenges that presents for staffing and stocking booze or whatever it is. I'd imagine we might be on another wave of cancellations again that are going to hurt venues if this COVID increase happens into the fall. I feel like those of us close to it have been talking about it now for over a year, but it's definitely lost in the broader story about the return of live music. I don't think the general public really understands that it's become a tale of have and have nots, or it's been very bifurcated, incredible success at the top end of the market. 
and still a lot of struggles in our sort of neighborhood and community level venues. So it clearly presents a big need and role for what you are up to. But I wonder, how does the sort of post-COVID world, if at all, changes how you think about mission? If the pandemic had never happened, would Live Music Society, would it be the same? If the pandemic had never happened, perhaps the same economic pressures from inflation and from fear of recession might still occur. These are pressures that have happened in the past. The economic cycles are not guaranteed. There is uncertainty around business operations. And those in some ways are very different. Coming out of COVID, the effect of inflation and escalating prices, especially things like insurance, which in some cases has risen by as much as 30%. And yet perhaps it's the climate crisis impact. A lot of it might be Astroworld, the fallout from Astroworld and the insurers' limitations on what they will and won't cover. But premiums have definitely been affected. Permits and licenses have been affected. The business pressures are there. And going back to the alcohol question, yeah, at this level, small venues rely very much on alcohol sales. And there are consumer patterns that are changing. The Sino now documented that Gen Z, very positively, Gen Z has a, a much better relationship with alcohol than perhaps my Gen X generation yeah. had. And the venue owners are beginning to realize that uh, kombucha and mocktails can be offered to patrons. So there's a kind of, there's a shift. There's a general kind of cultural shift as well, not just around COVID-19, but like, what does it mean to run a, a small music venue in the 24th century with shifting consumer tastes in the digital world? How do NFTs fit into this? How does, how do artist Patreons fit into this? A lot of questions and a lot of exciting ways that there can be opportunities for artists and venues to collaborate in new ways that I don't think have been explored yet that are actually quite exciting. So yeah, I think our mission would be the same. And it is to recognize and protect, to empower small venues. A trend that I've seen over the last year is in the funding field, when venues are looking at how do I survive? How do I ensure that I can pay artists when I'm not sure if I'm going to have a full house or an empty room? Or how do I give an emerging artist a chance when they don't, they definitely don't have an audience. What does that look like? How do I make that happen? Because that's my role in, in the music industry. A feeder system, as it will. They're looking at outside funding. And I think yeah. SVOG made people wake up to that. Like, oh, the federal government, people care that we don't go out, that we don't disappear. It is a very important economic engine from the stadium size, as you mentioned, the very highest to the lowest, because without the smaller venues, there is no low feeder system. There is no beginning bands. I think funding is going to become much more of a part of that. And I've seen there's a trend towards venues questioning their business structure. There's at least three or four venues who I know in the past year have transitioned to nonprofit. 
And that's not an easy undertaking because you have to adopt a real mission and develop your education, your community service programs. You have to build a board and there's a lot of tax implications and IRS implications. It's not an easy fix, but in some ways it is a better fit for venues so that they can have contributions that are tax deductible, that they can qualify for grants from private foundations and state funding and municipal funding that they would not otherwise qualify for because that seems to be a way that they can look at long-term help. We'll be back with more Spotlight On right after this break. Bonus Tracks, the official blog of Spotlight On, is currently accepting submissions for reviews and opinion pieces related to the topics we cover in the podcast. We're looking for engaging, insightful, and well-written articles that offer critical analysis and thoughtful commentary on various aspects of music. To learn more, visit SpotlightOnPodcast.com and click on Call for Submissions. Thanks. And now, back to Spotlight On. It sounds a bit similar to some of the challenge and solutions that we see with local news and newspapers and a very similar set of conversations, quite honestly, a transition to nonprofit status, a search for patronage or the safety net of a billionaire, just to say it plainly. That's how a lot of local newspaper syndicates and what have you are thinking about it. While it's exciting to see that hustle and the fruits of it start to take place, it seems like, I don't know a way to say it without sounding cranky or negative about it, but it seems a shame that that's what it has to come to, that a person with the dream of operating a small local venue and and being part of the local arts community or just being a music fan and being an idealist and wanting to throw a party five nights a week, that should be a valid pursuit and that someone could support themselves within their community. And of course, we could talk even more about the problems with local news and, and the, the repercussions of that. But it does all in total seem like a bit of a reflection on what we've done over the last 20, 30, 40 years in terms of corporatization of entertainment and media. And it's very hard to escape that. And I wonder, do you note that and just set it aside and say, I deal with the reality as it is? Or do you contemplate that as an organization? Like how do I don't know. How does how does how we got here fit into how you think about what you do, if at all? That is a, a very important question. You know, how people value music and art, humanities in this country, and whether it's a corporate entertainment model versus a public good and a need, an elemental human need that should be supported. It begins at the very youngest, you know, access to music education, access to artistic cultural opportunities for the very youngest people. I think the school system's removing most of their arts programming and music programming had a huge impact in the devaluation of this experience, live music, collective gathering, celebratory gathering. It's, it's an ancient feeling. Humans have been doing it since the beginning of humankind, and yet it's not always valued in a way that it should be. You're right. It should be possible for people to sustain this, but the 
the models need to just be revisited. And uh, part of that, having people realize that it's okay to spend the money on music, that the artists should be compensated, that it shouldn't be free. There's been a movement since Napster and with streaming, people assume that they're paying the lowest price possible for cultural experiences or access to people's intellectual property and don't feel like they should pay for it. And I think that's a re-educational opportunity that needs to happen. The streaming does not pay artists' salaries. They need to tour, and touring can be very hard on their mental health. It's a tough world out there for artists. So I think there needs to be a reckoning of what it means to support an artistic community. This has been a long-term conversation in America about how artists and musicians are supported and the nonprofit world and finding your tribe, your local tribe, whether it's a subscriber model, as the newspapers have done. If you believe in what we're doing, become a subscriber. That is definitely something I think, you know, the people who care want to put their money where their mouth is, whether or not they're actually in the room or doing it from afar. And so I think that is a viable alternative. Live Nation is reporting, or at least Ticketmaster is reporting, record revenue in the hundreds of millions. So there is pent-up demand for live music. So figuring out why people are prepared to pay hundreds and hundreds of dollars, they've pushed ticket prices higher and higher for stadium and arena tours to have some of that trickle down into the local environment and taking a chance new artist rather than somebody who's already a household name is something I hope will continue to happen. As the teenagers who were locked down during pandemic become to understand their own musical taste and what they're looking for from these live music experiences. I think something that's very exciting and encouraging in all that is that I do think we see the evidence. I can't obviously give it to you empirically, but I do think we all have anecdotes of looking around and whether it's ourselves and our wallets or witnessing campaigns where when an artist does choose to interact directly with their fan base and they cease to be intermediated by some of the corporate interests, fans will transact directly with the artist and the fan will support whether it is a Patreon or paying to get something. Like fans, I, I, you know, I, I say it a lot to my friends and colleagues and I say it a lot on here. We need to remember that fan is short for fanatic. The fan wants more of the thing they love. And they don't always know what they, they don't know what they're going to love tomorrow. They know what they love now and they'll spend on it when given the opportunity, big or small, right? A stadium or at a local venue, they just need to understand what it is. And I, I think it's very exciting to see that when an artist can step outside of that sort of corporate structure and appeal directly to fans, more often than not, the fans will meet them there. Whether it's the same scale and how that plays out, that's a, sort of a different conversation or it's the next conversation, but there's potential livelihoods there. And I think that's very exciting. And so having this network of small places becomes, you know, key to that because that is where the fan and the artist meet. We could do it here yeah. against the glass yeah. and against the screen, but ultimately all roads lead to let's go do it in person. <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. 
I love Patreon and, and there's artists who have sub stacks and they're cultivating their writing and their marketing. There's so much pressure on an artist to be everything, to, you yeah. know, to be a, a marketing genius and a, and somebody who is engaging and charismatic and not just a songwriter. That's a tough space for musicians, but it's, it's kind of what's needed. And it is, I've seen more and more musicians who are starting out who are actually making a decent living through these platforms when they don't have a record label and they don't have support. They are literally doing it for themselves. And I like the idea that there will be more partnerships such as that where the artist already has their fan base in a certain place and is cultivating it and can partner with the venue to say, okay, this is a special night for my Patreon community, or this is a special night, come meet me here. And also being able to just get their first gig somewhere. Uh, one of our grantees, the Rebel Lounge in Phoenix, Arizona, is using our grant money to give 80 artists their very first headline show. They may not have a Patreon. They may not even have a band brand or anything. They're just getting them on the stage and, and seeing how they do. Just the access point as well. How do you begin is really important. And that, those are the kinds of things that we want to fund that, that venues can take a risk. They don't have to rely on advanced sales or sellouts. They can continue to give that space to young musicians because you can't learn the craft on TikTok. You cannot learn to engage with people performing in front of real live people it's a very tricky learning experience. It can go very badly wrong in some cases. <laughs> but, but, you know, it's definitely you learn. You learn is where the rubber meets the road, you know, yeah. how to engage with people and how to get through a song without having to re-record 50 times. A, a real live experience. So I think artists listening to venues to listen to artists and, and hear where they are and what they need and what they want. I'm really hoping that there's going to be some economic stability. We keep hearing about tours that are cancelled because this is really tough to make ends meet, just not for venues, but for artists as well. Partly that came out of the fact that everybody just started touring at the same time. The second part of 2022, everybody was back out on the road. You couldn't find a tour bus for miles. The availability of things, lighting gear combined with um, supply chain issues made things really, really tough. And I hope that that will stabilize a little bit. But I do feel there needs to be multiple ways for artists to make a living so that they're not required to tour hundreds of nights in a row. There needs to be a reckoning in the music industry as a whole to what does it mean to support art? What does it mean to make a living? And that's an age-old conversation that I think venues have a part in. There's ways that venues can help support artists by working with them to develop their careers, by making sure that they give them the right amount of marketing, by supporting, and those are the kinds of things that we want to assist with. I, I want to come back to uh, talk to you a little bit about the grant period that you're in now, but I, I, I do, something you said stands out for me there, which is I think, I think Neva did prove that certain parts of the music ecosystem, specifically the venues and promoters, could have a mindset shift and go from everybody's a potential competitor to, oh my goodness, we are all pieces of a community and pieces of an ecosystem. That's really what's needed is for that mindset to 
to go into all of the other stakeholders, because in a world where once an artist has enough leverage, they're taking all of the ticket money. And when record label or rights holder has all the leverage, they're taking all the terms. Like everybody's taking, it's not even more than their fair share. It's everybody's taking as much as they can when they have the maximum leverage from everybody else. It's very cynical. And I think ultimately it plays off the idea that there's always another kid who wants to make it big. There's endless supply on the creative side. You know, I think you see that in the sports world. At any given time, how many professional athletes are there really in the major leagues combined, you know? Yeah. That's a bigger topic for another day. But <laughs> I, I, you know, it's, it's, it, to me, it is the root of a lot of the problems is this zero-sum thinking that the state... Yeah, the doggy, the doggy dog world. Yeah. yeah. yeah I think you're, you're right. It is a bit of a cynical way of looking and that people assume that the music industry is like that. But there's very bright, bright sparks of, of hope. And you're right. The fact that venue owners and artists came together to have their voices heard, that is the grounds of the Save Our Stages Act, that the federal government recognized and passed this legislation, which is unprecedented $16 billion. But in, in doing that, venues and the people at the the day-to-day aspects of the music industry learned that they could have their voices heard, that there is there's strength in numbers. And when I was at the Neva conference in this past July, there was just as, as many artists who were talking about the places that they love, you know, the places that had That's supported right. them in the very beginning, that there's this relationship with the venues that really nurtured your career such that when you get famous, you know, everybody talks about Bruce Springsteen and the Stone Pony, but there's examples of that across the country. Nirvana and the, the Mason Jar, Katy Perry and Hotel Cafe in, in Los Angeles. There's places that really are musicians' clubhouses that have supported artists, and artists don't forget that. So it's it's not an us versus them. It's just we're in this. And there is a movement I've been really appreciating, a movement called Detour, a new organization of venues out of Wichita and Milwaukee and the Midwest, but it's growing in stature and it is a collective of venues that engages in block booking. They're using their collective power to negotiate, being able to compete against Live Nation. The indie venues can make decent offers and route artists on a tour through their network but also looking at joining together to select a new artist, a young artist, who they will help along. They'll help Mm. develop and give their first tour to. And this is, I think, a really optimistic and a beautiful way of venues giving back to say we're not just going to engage our talent buyer to get the biggest price point that's going to sell out our venue. We're not just going to look at the booking agents and say, what you got? What's the next thing? But we're going to take an artist that we believe in and we're going to help them get to the next stage of their career. And we're going to show them what it means to tour and we're going to, and, and we're going to nurture them. And I think that's a super, it's a new kind of way of operating. It's something that is, they're not cynical in the least. Yeah, that's incredible. Let me circle back now. Tell me about the grant period you're in now. Like what, what's happening right now in the moment? 
Our toolbox applications are open. They will be open until October 10th at 11.59 Pacific. <laughs> oh, Pacific. Okay, great. <laughs> yeah, which is very specific because, you know, we often get a lot of applications in the last 15 minutes of the, of the application portal being open. So it's 11.59 Pacific time on October 10th. We are looking for venues that host 50 shows a year, 50 headliners a year. That is our criteria between 50 and 300 capacity for whom music is the brand identity. They can be restaurants, they can be bars, but they have to have an identity as a music venue. Artists come first, music comes first. And they can bring us a one-time project. They will have six months to implement the funding, which we will announce in early January. And they can come to us with requests, things like innovative technology that might improve or modernize their operations. They might be looking at hiring a consultant, maybe a grant writer, or somebody who can look at their acoustics, or marketing and branding. These are the kinds of things, very practical things, even stretching to upgrading equipment. We're going to leave it quite broad. This is the first application-based round that we've had, because our first toolbox grantees were a subset of the more than 100 applications we got last spring who came to us with these practical needs. So now we're saying, bring us your practical needs. And we're not really sure what those will be. So if the venue is not sure, we encourage them to apply anyway. And they'll have to tell us a little bit about their philosophy and the kind of music they present. And you have to have been in business since before the pandemic, in business in 2019. January 1, 2020 is the cutoff. So that's really the general criteria, the full criteria eligibility and the application can be accessed through our website, livemusicsociety.org, and we'll be selecting venues throughout the holiday period and, and announcing our set of venues early in January. And at that point, we will be announcing our second round of music in action grants, our larger $50,000 grant round which will launch again. That will be every spring. That's going to be our annual. And then we're looking in 2024 at whether we can do one or even perhaps two toolbox grant rounds per year. Those are the things we're looking ahead at. And building our network, looking at providing maybe educational opportunities or opportunities to come together and, and just discuss things and learn from each other, a big support group. <laughs> if fans, other music industry stakeholders people interested in the arts, if they want to participate and get involved, is there a fundraising component to what you do or are you board and founder supported? Like how can the broader community and ecosystem of people who care about these places participate? We do accept small donations through our website. We do have a commitment of funding currently from our board of directors, which I'm very grateful to, to have. But we do accept small donations, so you can do that or you can support your local small music venue, either by visiting, buying a ticket, just explore and reconnect with the venues that are in your area. And if there is a, a venue that we don't know about, then we, we always want to hear about venues. We're, one of the things that I plan to do over the next few months is to do a, a study on what the shield is, how many venues are out there. Like, what does it look like currently in America post-COVID um, as we lost, we lost several? And luckily, there's new ones opening all the time. 
We haven't addressed that in our funding, but it's something that definitely we want to look ahead at over the coming years is how we support the newest venue owners, the people who mm. want to learn how to open and run a music venue or who are just starting and might need a little leg up. That is an area of opportunity as we look at our next three to five year plan for sure. There's so much you could do there, whether it's an incubator or co cohorts or all kinds of fun, really helpful because in any business, it's so isolating and it's, mm. it's a lot of times you, you're reinventing the wheel for yourself when there's other people that could help you save a few steps or at the very least provide peer support. Yeah. And the word incubator is so key. That's part of what Detour is doing. And in fact, we have just announced a partnership with an incubator in Austin, Texas called the House of Songs. And we are connecting with them and collaborating with them. They bring songwriters over from other parts of the world to collaborate with local songwriters. They started in Austin, Texas. During the pandemic, they were forced to relocate to their headquarters in Bentonville, Arkansas. But we've just partnered with them to open a brand new space in East Austin. And they're launching that in October. A whole new cohort of songwriters with collaborative opportunities throughout Austin. And this is a new direction for us of looking at incubating artists and where those two worlds meet, venue and the performers. Well, I have to say, one of the grant recipients happens to be one of my favorite venues in America, the Royal Room here in Seattle. Uh -huh. and uh, Fantastic. Yes. Wayne. Wayne, incredible room, incredible lineage. And for Wayne, you know, incredible lineage stretching all the way back to New York and to the Lower East Side, as you articulated. I lived in New York for a better part of 20 years. I appreciate that connection. I was thinking earlier when you were talking that it's a shame that the organization didn't exist when Tonic was around because that room probably could have benefited from the type of support uh, that you're offering. Venues. Tonic. What a great <laughs> Legendary place. venue. Legendary venue. I have a funny story about Wayne Horvitz because when I joined Live Music Society in the summer of 2021, I was learning about our current grantees and looking at the Royal Room and thinking, oh, that's a really cool space. Oh, Wayne Horvitz. That can't be the same way in all of it. <laughs> like who used to perform with Mark Ribot and, and the dudes down, downtown. So I got in touch with them. I was like, are you by any chance? And of course, yeah. So we started reminiscing about New York and the great, great music. And then he came to perform at this amazing place in Brooklyn called The Owl in a bill that included Bobby Previtt, the great drummer, yeah. percussionist, Bobby Previtt. And so we got to connect as music fans heads in the Lower East Side, not just live music society and venue owner. It was really nice. Great musician, amazing philosophy. And yeah, the Royal Room is a fantastic place. Another venue that we support in Seattle is the Sunset Tavern. They are part one of our current music in action grantees. They are going to revive a ballad indie festival called Big Ass Boombox build an outdoor stage and make it a free festival for up-and-coming bands in Seattle. I want to hear that you've been and that you're going to visit them when they, when they launch that in the spring. That's wonderful. I'd say one, one last quick anecdote that it sat with me over the last week or so because it's been such a joy to watch, which is I just recently dropped my oldest son off at college in San Francisco. And 
Last weekend, John Zorn did a residency of shows over the weekend in San Francisco for his 70th birthday. And I was telling my son, I saw his 40th at the old knitting factory. I saw his 50th at Tonic. And I saw his 60th at NYU. And my 18-year-old son went to his 70th at the Great American Music Hall and saw Electric Masada. It was a very proud moment as a dad. (laughs) (laughs) That is incredible. Man, you know, that's the lineage. That's what we all live for. That's Uh, exactly right. My daughter has very, my teenage daughter has very different musical tastes, but she surprises me. Her age group, they have access to so much music. Yeah. And she's puts playlists together and I'm like, how do you know that song? And I get the rolled eyes of like, what? Of course I like Fleetwood Mac, she says. Of course I like those. I'm like, wow. Yeah, no, my access to music when I was her age was listening to John Teal on the radio in in, uh, a tiny little farming town in southern England. It's interesting to see our children's musical tastes and Masada, one of the great, one of the great bands coming out of New York. Yeah, happy birthday, John Zorn. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. That's right. And many more. Thank you so much, Kat Henry and the fine people at Live Music Society. As always, thank you for listening to Spotlight On, a production of 23 Media Ventures. I'm your host and executive producer, Lawrence Purrier. We're produced and edited by Michael Donaldson with theme music by Cuburn's Abstract Message. For past episodes, web-only exclusives, to make a donation to support our production and to join our mailing list, visit us online at spotlightonpodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Be safe and stay in touch. Stay in touch.